0: Hello and welcome to Frank Skinner's Poetry Podcast. I'd like to talk to you today about an American poet called Rita Dove. Rita Dove is uh, a former American Poet Laureate, or the the equivalent of, of the Poet Laureate, and also winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. So she's doing all right, Rita. I'd like to talk about a poem from 1989 of Rita Dove's called Ars Poetica. Ars Poetica, for you um, Latin scholars, I guess you know that it means the art of poetry. There's been a few of these written, as you can imagine, over the years, with people offering their views on what poetry is and what it should be. Uh, You could say, if you really wanted to stretch the terminology, that this podcast is an Ars Poetica, but let's not do that. Um, The first one I know of was written by the Roman poet Horace, his was quite prescriptive and uh, he talked a lot about how a poet should operate. Rita Dove's *Poetic Poetica is much more over there than over here, if, if you know what I mean. It's, not, it's much less direct and you have to kind of find out what Rita's getting at with her, uh, with her poetical theories. It begins, this is the first line of Rita Dove's Ars Poetica. 30 miles to the only decent restaurant. It's quite an opening, isn't it? And interestingly, I don't know how influenced uh, she has been by the Roman poet Horace, but in that Ars Poetica of his, one of the things he says is that never begin, as he called it, ab ovo, so, if you're telling a story, never begin ab ovo, meaning with the egg. Don't start right at the very, very beginning. Jump in to the narrative and let the uh, the listener, let the reader, let the audience member—if uh, some of the stuff he talks about is dramatic poetry—let them find their way. And and Rita Dove does exactly this. Thirty miles to the only decent restaurant. And the word decent, I think, grabs you immediately. Whoever the speaker is in this, it's someone who doesn't like to rough it or make do, someone who maybe bullies the waiting staff and um, probably compares every mouthful of food to the platonic ideal of a restaurant mouthful. So... It's quite alienating, that first line. 30 miles to the only decent restaurant. You think, oh God, I do if I'm going to like this person. But of course, one of the great joys of poetry is that a line ending is not a sentence ending. And what happens is that line structure and punctuation work beautifully together often in, in poems. So you get the best of both worlds. So a poet is able to make a point on the way to the end of a sentence, and then the sentence makes a, a slightly modified, a slightly different point. So let me explain in this case. So there's no full stop at the end of that first line. So if I read it through to the second line, 30 miles to the only decent restaurant was nothing, a blink. Oh, okay. so this is a different thing now. It's saying that that is it's not a problem, just a blink. So if that first line is supposed to conjure up the image of a person who says things like 30 miles, the only decent restaurant, it it now feels like a quote. It now feels like the speaker is is quoting that and arguing against it and, and, and modifying it in some way. A blink just sounds like a, 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 a fairly casual throwaway way of saying uh, throwaway way I'm not happy with. You see, that is why I read poetry, but I don't write it. A throwaway method of uh, describing a very short period of time, a blink. But then if I give you the whole sentence now, which goes across the first three lines, 30 miles to the only decent restaurant was nothing. A blink. In the long, dull stare of Wyoming. And wow, that's pretty damning. The long, dull stare of Wyoming. This is not a slogan you're going to see on the Wyoming Visitors Bureau window. And what's clever about it is what the blink, which just sound like a fairly standard way of of describing a short period of time. This is just a blink. It's now that that blink is sort of promoted to being part of this enormous, long, dull stare. And by the way, that use of long and dull, those are words it's very hard to clip through. I'm clicking my fingers now, which probably doesn't help that You have to go long, dull. You have to feel it. You have to feel spending time in Wyoming. Of course, also, one feels that maybe there are visitors there. You, we don't know at this stage. But it's that thing when you go into a bar and the locals all stare at you. But this isn't even one of those slightly menacing, uh, you know, who are you, stares. It's just long and dull. And the blink, although it is a flash of time, is entombed in dullness. So, 30 miles to the only decent restaurant was nothing. A blink in the long, dull stare of Wyoming. Okay, it goes on. Halfway there, so we're off. We go into that restaurant with all the tension and all the potential mishaps that that implies. Halfway there, the unknown but terribly important essayist yelled stop. <laughs> now, stop is a fairly explosive way to end a sentence. It, it, it's, it's got a uh, an exclamation mark and it's yelled, so it's the big thing. But it's, that's not what we're interested in. We're interested on the way there. The unknown but terribly important essayist is about as damning a description as you can get. I'll tell you what I'm thinking, and I may be adding to what is actually here in the poem, and I don't know if that's a a, a good... I think interpretation of varying forms is fine, but I don't think you can put in stuff that isn't there. However, I'm going to share it with you. For me, Rita Dove is in a car provided by a literary festival driven by some put upon volunteer in a festival t-shirt she's probably in the passenger seat and in the back is the unknown but terribly important essayist now and again leaning forward between the driver and rita saying something annoying in this case stop which you can imagine is not a great thing when you're when you're a passenger in a car to shout now why as the unknown but terribly important essayist yelled stop well it gets better I want to be in this and walked 15 yards into the land before sky bore down and he came running crying Jesus there's nothing out there so the unknown but terribly important essayist wants to be in this this land, in this environment, and then panics and runs back to the car. Now, for me, that section that this, this guy yells, stop, I want to be in this, walk 15 yards into the land, and then came running back to the car, it feels quite exaggerated. And Rita Dove is often the opposite of exaggerated. She's very understated. And I think this, that's deliberate. I think because this incident, this essay is stopping the car, dashing out, then panicking and coming back. I think that's an anecdote. That's it feels like an anecdote that's been told time and time again by the speaker, and whoever the speaker is, it might be Rita Dove, it might be a version of her. And because of that, you know, the the, the writer may well have, have not said, "I want to be in this." They may not have come running back crying. There's nothing out there, but that's what anecdotes do. They grow and they become more vivid, and they lose any extraneous details. so that this this may have happened I don't know if it did happen. It may have happened in in black and white, but in the retelling it is now in vivid color h d it's it's become a big story which sort of destroys the unknown but terribly important essayist. The next stanza, if we're going to talk about slaughtering people on the way to telling us stuff about them, what about this for an opening for stanza three? I once met an Australian novelist. Now, to me, and this is... Maybe this is very shabby of me. To me, I once met an Australian novelist is not far away from unknown but terribly important use for the essayist. Especially if you're an American, I think the idea of an Australian novelist is probably someone who needs to know their place slightly. And this guy, as as you'll see, he, he, he doesn't. And whereas the essayist has sort of been humiliated as the sky bore down on him... I mean, you know, in any grand landscape, that feeling of insignificance, how how small we are, how little we know, as the old song says. And if you're uh, an unknown but terribly important essayist, that's one of the the last realisations you want to have foisted upon you. The Australian novelist seems much more confident in himself. I'll give you the whole stanza. I once met an Australian novelist who told me he never learned to cook because it robbed creative energy. What he wanted most was to be mute. He stacked up pages. He entered each day with an axe. Now, there's a lot, isn't there, to one pack here. An Australian novelist who told me he never learned to cook because it robbed creative energy. Energy. That's okay if he lives on fruit. But what we're imagining here, I think, is somewhere in the distance a partner of the Australian novelist who does have to cook because their creative energies may be more expendable. And also, to be mute is his ambition. So if you're going to do a Tinder profile of this guy who won't cook or speak, And who worships at the altar of his own creative energy? I don't know. It wouldn't. It wouldn't get me out there. And this, I. There is a certain genre of creative I would call the muscular creative, people who almost feel a bit embarrassed that they're in the arts in some way, and who try to pretend that they are workers. This is just a kind of a work. And and this this guy here, the Australian novelist, he stacked up pages. It sounds like you know mass production. Someone working in a in a in a factory, he stacked up pages, and he entered each day with an axe. It's like the sculptor who wears overalls and carries a a, a blow lamp. You know that kind of. I know I'm in the arts, but hey. I can handle myself if I have to. Bear in mind this poetry is called Ars Poetica and should be telling us about her view of poetry. It's a bit confusing. We've met an essayist who's got ego issues, it seems, and then an Australian novelist who's got this... uh, It starts each day with an axe. It's sort of what it shouldn't be, I suppose. It's... I think that Rita Dove's style is is the opposite of entering the day with an axe hers is more the scalpel than the axe and poets tend not to stack up pages it it, it has a sparseness about it poetry i think to some extent she's she's championing her own genre without actually championing her own genre she's just giving a couple of other examples of the the non-fiction writer and the novelist and she's just letting them be in quite a negative way and then finally in the last stanza we get to what she thinks about poetry what poetry should be and what her poetry should be, what she's aiming for. So we've got a couple of don'ts, and now I think we're going to get a a do. So listen to this. What I want is this poem to be small. That's, again, quite a great opening line. Very, very counterintuitive. Why? Why would you want that? Surely you want it to be expansive and life-changing. Well, I think she does want that, but what she's getting across is her method of achieving that. There's no stacked top pages and, and no acts here. The, there's no essayist saying, here's my opinion, how exciting, which I think every essayist essentially says. There's no um, macho novelist celebrating his own productivity. No, what i want is this poem to be small a ghost town on the larger map of wills then you can pencil me in as a hawk a travelling x marks the spot well what's what is going on here so she wants the poem to be small a ghost town on the larger map of wills, and I guess that's what we've seen from these guys, their wills, they wear their wills on their sleeve. These are snarling, punching, taking on the world type guys, or the essays tries it and then and then panics. She She's on the map of wills, people who are driven by their intentions and driven by their ambitions, but she is a ghost town on it. Empty, you drive through it, almost unnoticeable, on that larger map of wills. The idea of de- describing these other writers on the, on a map of wills, that's what it is, the gritted teeth of literature. But then it sounds uh, quite humble, and we don't really want her to be humble after we've heard about these two terrible literary figures that she's introduced us to. But she says, then you can pencil me in as a hawk. Now, what's going on here? First of all, she's fairly dismissive, I think, about this map of wills you'd think would be this important map of literature. It's okay to draw on it. It's fine. And also, when you put me on, just pencil me in. I realise, you know, it's a temporary thing. I don't want to make the big splash. I just want to be that nagging thing that you read and you can't get out of your head. I don't want to hector anyone. I'm looking for nuance. So I'm I'm on the map, but you wouldn't even notice me. I'm penciled. And don't worry about the map. It's okay. You have to draw on it because you're involved. I'm not going to be punching tables and telling you what I feel you're going to have to find your way. Like in this poem, what does she think about poetry compared to other disciplines? Well, we can find it here, but she's not laying it on the line. We're having to seek it a bit. We're having to do some scribbling on the map, but she says, pencil me in as a hawk, a hawk. I think something that we associate very much with with vision some, something that finds things, something that hunts things down, something of great beauty and power and strength, but silent and just hovering above. And there's that beautiful bit, a travelling X marks the spot. And one imagines a hawk, the shadow of a hawk on the ground would form an X like that when it's in flight. And a travelling X marks the spot, so I'm not so graspable, I'm not so obvious, you're going to have to work me out a little bit, but an X marks the spot always signifies treasure, so I think she's saying, oh yeah, I might not be as loud as these other guys, but I know what I'm doing here, it, it, it's, you know, it's, not, it's not modesty, it's, it's a celebration of her form of, of art. It's, it's a celebration of the sort of enigm- enigmatic relationship with the subject. It's, as I said, her slightly over there We know she's talking about poetry and what she feels it should be and what she wants her poetry to be. But, wow, she's not, she's not laying it on the line. She's laying it somewhere over there. It's a moving X marks the spot. It's not easy to grasp. This is the poetry of stealth, of, of understatement and that i think is is what she loves most of all and i just want to look at one of her poems to, to give her an idea of how this works so we'll take the, the theory even though i think ours poetica is a beautiful poem it's not it's not just a how-to it's a long way away from from that it's a great poem in its own right but I just wanted to look at another poem. And I thought I'd, I, the one I chose is about a subject which we might feel is incredibly trivial. But I think her subtle method doesn't make things less important. I think it, it makes them bigger, but in a way that we don't always recognise the bigness of. Look, it's an abstract thought. I'll, I'll get to the actual meat of the poem. The poem is another poem from the 80s by Rita Dove called Flirtation. Now you think, what, flirtation? That's a subject for a... For a, a po- so it's not even a love poem. It's a poem about flirtation. So it's the sort of lesser level. It's somewhere below. If love poems are in the Champions League places, flirtation is just above relegation, I would say, in the grand league table of human emotions and their expressions in written work. Flirtation begins, and it's in short two-line stanzas, quite staccato stanzas. It begins, after all, there's no need to say anything. Now, combined with the title, flirtation, you think, when it begins, after all, you think, oh, so something has gone on here. This is an aftermath. This is some sort of post-coital regret. There's no need to say anything. Yeah. It has a sort of a let's-just-forget-this-ever-happened feel to it. But again, this thing that she's very clever with of ending a line but not ending the sentence, if we go on to finish that sentence, which, which finishes in the second stanza, after all, there's no need to say anything at first. Oh, okay. so we're not post anything, we're pre-something here. So this is something that's beginning and there's no need to say anything. Can I say it's also a brilliant way to start a poem with the first stanza saying, after all, there's no need to say anything, thus kind of shooting down the whole purpose of the poem in the first place. Anyway, after all, there's no need to say anything at first. It goes on. Get this. An orange, peeled and quartered, flares like a tulip on a Wedgwood plate. Anything can happen. What is going on there? So we seem to be, the flirtation is, is beginning, it's in its tentative early stages. That pause in the sentence, there's no need to say anything. At first, it's got that kind of teasing. You know, that's the, the, the separation of the stanzas. It gives you that sort of v- very electric atmosphere of, of flirtation. I'm, I mean, I haven't flirted for many, many years, but I have a, a, a sort of a vague memory of how it feels. And an orange peeled and quartered flares like a tulip on a wedgewood... Plate. Now, an orange peeled and quartered flares is clearly an erotic image of something peeled and parted and juicy, but it flares. Why does it flare? Because I think the speaker is on high alert excitement, anticipation, a sort of ultra aliveness that can come from flirtation. So the colors are brighter, everything is bigger. And everything is is in sharper definition because of the uh, of the of the high alert state she finds her in. But then, like a tulip on a Wedgwood plate, seems to kill the peeled and quartered orange image, because for me, a tulip on a Wedgwood plate, it's it's like the um the orange peeled and quartered you can imagine that in an impressionist painting that orange the sensuality of it whereas the tulip on a wedgwood plate what you've got there is sort of north european austerity the the tulip representing the flemish artists and wedgwood englishness so you've got sort of this is protestantism in this image Compared with the sort of Spanish fire of of the orange, but they're not separate images. One is a simile of the other. So, an orange peeled and quartered flares like a tulip on a Wedgwood plate. And I think this is a statement about about flirtation. About flirtation, it it in, it includes that high emotional state, that impressionist sensuality. Of the, of the peeled and quartered orange. But then the drawback from that, the tulip on the Wedgwood plate, that, that austerity, that, that coldness. And I think that's how flirtation works. The reaching out is part of the same movement as the drawing back. It's a very subtle art, and you have to be careful not not to go too far in either direction. And then there's a slightly, I mean, what she says there, like a tulip on a wedge would plate, anything can happen. And just reminding us there, even though we've gone to the more austere image of the tulip on a Wedgwood plate, anything can happen. Either of these two options, the emotional impressionism of the orange or the cold reserve of the tulip on the, on the wedge would plate, they're both on the cards at this stage. She doesn't know. We don't know which way it's going to go. And then we get what I would call a sort of a, it's a sort of a poetic interlude. It's quite filmic, actually. We feel we've been very close to this um, this activity, and now it's like we've cut to a big wide because the next couple of stanzas read, outside the sun has rolled up her rugs. And night strewn salt across the sky. So, yeah, it is. it has caught to the wide. So we don't know what's going on in the close-up while we're out there. But also, it is telling us quite an important factor to this flirtation, that it is now night. And I think night... Makes everything a bigger deal. I had a friend who always did first dates as lunches because he said if you do dinners after dinner, it's dark, and suddenly things like getting home, the bedroom, all those nighttime things make everything uh, a much bigger deal. So the night, the night strewn salt across the sky, my heart. That stanza ends so we're not she's doing that thing again of breaking the sentence so the the stanza is and night strewn salt across the sky my heart and you think yes we're back we're back in close up again because we're talking about her heart and she continues she completes that my heart is humming a tune I haven't heard in years and I think we know it, that it's it's that She may not have flirted for a long time, but it's in everyone, that feeling of excitement, of anticipation, of fear, of things getting out of hand, but quite liking it. So she's humming a tune I haven't heard in years. It's the thrill of the new in the new that it's a new person, but it dips into that that pool of a more that she's probably had her whole adult life. And also she's humming that tune. She's not singing it. Remember, this poem begins. After all, there's no need to say anything. It's gone a bit deeper than words, just humming that tune. Is enough. And then I think perhaps the most difficult stanza in this poem, and one that pulls me up a bit sharp and confuses me quiet, cool flesh. Let's sniff and eat it. Quiet cool flesh. Now I'm assuming that this is the flesh. Uh, The cool flesh belongs to quiet. I think that apostrophe is is doing belonging rather than saying quiet is cool flesh. Quiet's cool flesh. So quiet, the silence of the night. That produces a sort of a cold flesh, maybe like the flesh of that peeled orange. And it's, it's cool And at the moment, it's safe and non-threatening. Things are quiet, things are cool, but it's there. Let's sniff and eat it. Now, if we take flirtation as a sort of tightrope walk that it feels like in this, this seems to me like she's starting to wobble. Let's sniff and eat it. She's toppling, isn't she? She's giving in, you feel you know where this is. If she wants to sniff and eat, quiets cool flesh. She could mean let's let's just enjoy the the idea of the of the forbidden fruit, the flaring orange, but it's very what happens next. You're getting too close, Rita, or whoever the speaker is. you're getting too close. We're almost there at the end. Now, this stanza, there are ways to make of the moment. There's no full stop. We're going somewhere. There are ways to make of the moment. And I remember, just to make it even worse, the first time I ever read this poem, that was actually the end of a page. And I was thinking, oh, man, what ways? What are you going to make of the moment? How is this going to end? And you may be thinking that now. I should stop here at have a competition. See if you can guess what she is going to make of this moment, of all this tension, of all this sensuality, of the reaching out and the holding back. What is she going to make of the moment? I don't think you would have guessed the answer. Because when we get to that final stanza, what is she going to make of the moment? What is she going to make of the moment? The answer is... A topiary. What? A topiary. I don't know if you know what topiary is. Topiary is when you cut hedges into the shapes of animals and geometric figures and stuff like that. That's topiary. A topiary is a garden with that kind of stuff in it. So all this flotation, all this memories of what, new love feels like all this romantic description of the night all this bursting juicy fruit a topiary what 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 are you talking about well she goes on a bit further a topiary so the pleasures in walking through so that's what she likes about flirtation she doesn't want to stop She's going to walk through. She's going to enjoy it. She's going to enjoy the experience, but the pleasure is in walking through. You keep walking. You look, you enjoy, you're delighted, but ultimately you keep walking. So the poem works something like, like this. We don't know what will loom up next, but we keep walking. That The topiary image is clever. Animals Without the animals, spiky, curvy, wild things made geometric and ordered. So it feels like at the end, North European reason and restraint wins through this time. But we don't feel confident it always will because she really did want to sniff and eat that cool fruit. But she has now moved on. So it's like art provides an acceptable playground for the flirtation. Uh, Topiary, a garden of of topiary. Or the poem. Restraint is there. Order is there. So she's able to indulge but move on and not indulge too much. And the poem is small. As I said, it's about flirtation, not about some great love and not about fear or hate or all the all the big things. It's about an apparently small, quite playful thing. And it's what she wanted in Ars Poetica. She wants the poem to be small. But of course, it's it's still gripping because, again, from Ars Poetica, she is the hawk. It's so well, observe this thing. Every one of those little two-line stanzas moves us in a different direction. She's constantly wrong footing us and making us think what's gonna happen here. And she keeps showing us different aspects of this highly charged encounter. And again, from Ars Poetica, the, the moving X marks the spot. I, I mean I I that's what's happening. We, we don't know where we are with it. We don't know where she is. We don't know what the voice wants. And when the hawk finally lands, when it perches in a topiary and the X marks the spot stops moving, I mean, that made me so... If you're looking for treasure under an X marks the spot... That topiary ending, when I first read that, I whooped with joy. Oh, man. Unknown but important essayist, Australian novelist, Eat Your Hearts Out. Rita Dove, read more of her. She's, She's fab. Thank you for listening to my poetry podcast. If you enjoyed it, please make sure to rate, review and subscribe. Oh, I hate saying that. I also have a book out, How to Enjoy Poetry, which you can get from all the usual places. I love saying that. And finally, don't forget you can catch me every Saturday morning at 8am on Absolute Radio. More jokes, less poetry. See you next week.